0: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online
1: at
2: CommonwealthClub.org. Hello, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California and our program on green cities. We're very pleased today to have uh, with us um, a distinguished panel. Warren Karlinsig is the st- chief strategy officer for Sustainlane, uh, a company or an organization that's here in San Francisco, just down the street, and he's director of their U.S. city sustainability rankings, which you'll be hearing about today. Uh, Jared Blumenfeld is director of the S- City of San Francisco Department of the Environment. Um, he's from the government, and he's uh, he's here to help. <laughs> Uh, Ian Kim is with the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, where he is in charge of a program called uh, Reclaim the Future, which looks at the nexus of uh, uh, social issues and environmental issues, and there's quite, quite a lot of issues that uh, that get into play uh, there. I'd also like to acknowledge the role played by uh, Eric Fried uh, in organizing uh, and uh, uh, making the arrangements for this event. Uh, I don't see Eric. He's there. Right. Oh, there he is. Hiding Eric. in the shadows. Okay, without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Warren Karlenzig, who will uh, give an, some introductory re- remarks.
1: Thank you very much, Kerry. Thanks to the Commonwealth Club. And I also want to thank uh, contributing author to How Green Is My City, uh, Richard Young in the back there, and uh, Ken Ott, uh, who did uh, photos for the book as well. And that was just released the past week. Um, I'm with Sustain Lane. As Carrie told you, uh, sustainlane.com has the largest directory of green businesses in the nation. There are 12,000 green businesses listed on sustainlane.com, and it also has... Uh, Reviews that people write, thousands of reviews about green products and services, and it's all part of this exploding green economy. And that's the green economy versus the gray economy. And yeah, the gray economy in the dot-com days, they would call it the old economy or whatever. Um, I'm calling it the gray economy. It's it's legal, but it's off the books. It's get away with it while you can take the money and run Uh, it's about carbon emissions uh, not being counted toxic pollutants and catastrophic global climate change uh, that are someone else's problem or another generation's problem and not, not your own. The green economy considers system impacts to the economy, quality of life, it mitigates global climate change, it makes money and creates jobs by providing sustainable development for current and future generations. Everyone here is aware of the meltdown at the MacArthur maze that happened last week or early this week, and I'm going to use that to put in perspective of how San Francisco and Oakland, which two representatives in our panel are uh, in the Bay Area, are leading the way in helping us move from the gray economy to the green economy. A truck containing thousands of gallons of unleaded gas in the gray economy, uh, unleaded gas was... It represented big progress to reduce pollutants. But the gray economy didn't look at the economic impacts of where that gas comes from. Iraq, Iran, Nigeria, Venezuela, and attendant off the books cost of securing that through supported, and through supporting uh, despotic regimes, drilling, producing, transporting, or consuming that gas. None of that was looked at as part of our economy. Petroleum acquisition results in scores of billions of dollars in defense expenditures annually, probably more. That's a very conservative estimate. Not to mention massive carbon and ecosystem impacts. And by the way, yesterday it was revealed uh, that the Arctic ice cap might be melting 30 years sooner than uh, previously thought by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which just came out a month ago. So that estimate just in yesterday. Um, As Paul Hawken States in the forward to our new book how green is my city a carbon-constrained world is upon us now What if instead that truck on Sunday were carrying solar cells produced in San Jose? They could be used for generating non-polluting greenhouse gas free energy that would be plentiful for decades to come not only for homes businesses and industry, but also for transportation That's right, you could power plug-in hybrid electric vehicles from solar panels. Today, even if it were a biodiesel truck, that fuel would be produced in the U.S., hopefully in California, benefiting U.S. growers and local U.S. processors, and it likely wouldn't have exploded as biodiesel has a flashpoint above 250 degrees while gasoline is at below zero and anything above that. If biodiesel did combust, it would have produced 40 to 60% less carbon emissions, while leaving a strong odor of french fries all the way to Gilroy, just in time for the garlic festival. To its credit, the Bay Area in California has a green economy response to the freeway meltdown. Governor Schwarzenegger provided funding for free public transit on Monday. And by the way, free public transit exists year-round in the number one city in How Green is my city, Portland, Oregon. Three hundred sixty five days of the year, free public transit. Think of it. So in the Bay Area though, people are telecommuting this week and they're using more public transit than they typically use. The Bay Area is a leader in public transit used nationwide, with BART, bus lines, ferries, streetcars, There are three rail lines running on or under Market Street outside this building, two stacked underground. Nowhere else in the world does this occur. In contrast, some metro areas almost completely lack public transit. Kansas City, Austin, Texas, Indianapolis, Dallas-Fort Worth, Phoenix. What would the governor of Arizona do in a similar situation? Offer free gas to everyone? Green urban areas are fast becoming more attractive to employers and people interested in quality of life and convenience. As gas prices rise or as gas availability becomes less reliable, regional economic competitiveness is starting to become based on factors such as public transit availability, walkability, and mixed use zoning, where people can live, shop, and work in the same neighborhood. Other gray economy areas will also become obsolete. Buildings that require massive fossil fuel provided heating, cooling, and lighting systems with searing black top roofs are being replaced by buildings that generate and conserve their own energy, use natural light and ventilation, and even harvest rainwater on green rooftops that stay cool, provide habitat, and reduce the urban heat island effect. Some of these elements are happening in New York City on the new corporate headquarters of Bank of America, for instance. These aren't just small little pilot projects. And Boston, in December, just passed a zoning ordinance requiring that any building over 50,000 square feet be LEED certified. That's every single building, every high-rise built in Boston. That's going to happen around the country, hopefully, right, Jared? Green urban areas will provide a significant Maybe amount enough. of their food regionally instead of importing it from across the globe. Oakland, last year set a goal to have 30 percent of its food come from local or regional sources by 2030. This will reduce major transportation pollution impacts while ensuring a more robust regional economy. It will also help make sure that food is what it is sold as, not unregulated toxic industrial byproducts from China that are finding their way into the food chain of pets and people, has been revealed this week, across the United States. A key part of the green economy is becoming Uh, more robust in terms of local economic development. Clean technologies, creating new urban industries, jobs and businesses. For instance venture capital firms provided $2.9 billion for clean tech startups last year much of it in the Bay Area and Metro Boston. So this is not just a pipe dream. This is the hottest growing area of our economy growing faster than the IT economy was. Local and organic food is the fastest growing food segment in the economy. Green building is the fastest growing segment in commercial construction and design. And cities are the centers for all these trends. And the Bay Area cities are helping provide a model for urban centers in developing nations, where the majority of the world's population now resides. So what we're looking at here is where the green cities are in the United States. And uh they are clustered on the west coast in the Bay Area. Uh, Portland's at the top of that list there. You'll see it more in detail in the book, How Green is My City, which is being sold out there. And uh, at the bottom of the list in the red zone is uh, Columbus, Ohio, and there's some other cities there. But let's take a look at what these indicators are. Waiting on technology here. Here's San Francisco's profile. We looked at 2,000 data and information points on the 50 largest U.S. cities to provide a relativity ranking of cities, and San Francisco came in number two of the largest 50 U.S. cities. This isn't metro areas. It's the cities themselves. San Francisco excels in areas such as uh, planning and land use. Luckily, there's not much sprawl here, but it also has the highest percentage of parks of any city the largest 50 cities in the nation. Uh, good air quality, good water quality, good uh, public transit, uh, green economy definitely developing here, great knowledge base, thanks to Jared and his folks. Um, good in lead buildings, uh, good in local agriculture, energy, uh, renewable energy. It's becoming the center of uh, solar energy from 1 megawatt to uh, about 35 megawatts by 2013. And San Francisco is the leader right now in, in solar Uh, energy generation, and it will be even more so by 2013. Um, It has poor scores in areas such as metro congestion. We all know that. That reduces economic efficiency and also environmental efficiency to have cars stuck in traffic. Uh, Housing affordability, everyone knows that's a problem. If San Francisco is a place where only the rich can live and service workers have to commute in two or three hours, which is reality these days, that has huge economic and environmental impacts, and impacts on community where people can't contribute to where they live. Natural disaster risk is high. As uh, Mayor Newsom said, the the MacArthur meltdown was a wake-up call that what happens in an earthquake? We could be cut off in power, water, infrastructure for transportation. So, uh, Sustainability speaks to all these things. Now let's uh, take a look. Oakland. Ian is from Oakland, from the Alabama Center, and Oakland is number five out of the largest 50 U.S. cities. Again, Oakland has strong scores in, in Metro Public Transit, uh, relatively strong scores in city commuting. They're improving more, by the way, because of Mayor Brown's initiative to locate more people in the center of the city. Good recycling, uh, city innovation is up there, good local food, green economy, knowledge base, strong. Uh, Oakland does have less than stellar scores in planning and land use it's more sprawled it has less parks per capita and uh, tap water quality is not that great surprisingly um, there are a number of pollutants over the threshold level this is all public information by the way from public data that that information and it has high metro congestion housing affordab- affordability is low and natural disaster risk is also a problem but Oakland overall is doing relatively well. And we just wanted to provide a dashboard to look at all these things so that people can at a glance know how cities are doing overall, but also in each category instead of saying, yeah, I think the water's pretty good. How good is it compared to 50 other cities or 49 other cities? Now let's take a look at another city, Oklahoma City, which is ranked number 49, to just give you a comparative idea of how other cities fare compared to the Bay Area. Um, there's almost no public transit in oklahoma city it It's sprawled out completely, totally dependent on the automobile, uh, little recycling uh, sprawled you know for planning and land use too no parks or not many parks per capita little no farmers' markets practically I think there might be one, and it 's a city of somewhere four hundred thousand or something. Um, I think there was one green building in the city so there are parts of the nation where this is the reality that they're not as advanced as the Bay Area. They're not looking at these things and these cities are going to come up against a very harsh future when oil prices and energy prices rise, when there's food security problems with uh, imported food being contaminated from other countries that don't have the environmental controls we have and when uh, public transit transit systems aren't in place to to provide mobility to all segments of the population when there are natural disasters or man-made disasters or uh, energy supply crunches like the oil embargo of the early seventies. Our economy relies on these things. So without further ado, the new book's out, How Green Is Your City? It gives you more details on these. Thank you, Ian. Boy, what a plug. And uh, forward by Paul Hawken. jared and we worked with his agency and many others throughout the country to come up with this and other experts it's the first book really benchmarking city sustainability and coming out with these numbers so people can compare them discuss them and hopefully improve for the future and realize the importance of these of measuring these areas so i would now give you our next speaker who is jared blumenfeld he is the director of the san francisco department of the environment which is, by the way, the largest sustainability or environmental department of any city in the nation, I believe. He'll clarify if that's true or not. Uh, There are over 70 employees in that department, and they've been responsible for everything from having the highest recycling rate or solid waste diversion rate, as they call it in the industry, of any city. It's now at 69%, and they're trying to move to zero waste by 2020. Besides the solar efficiency of San Francisco being the biggest producer of solar energy of any city in the United States, let alone per capita at one megawatt, uh, San Francisco also is a leader in expanding farmer's markets, uh, improving walkability, bikeability. Two percent of people are able to ride their bikes to work in San Francisco, which might be laughed at in other parts of the nation where there's zero percent of people riding their bikes to work. But it says a lot about the infrastructure and says a lot about the planning and zoning, and it says a lot about reducing childhood obesity and many other elements of our society that have become ingrained. So, Jared was appointed in 2001 by Mayor Willie Brown. He's now under the Newsom administration. Thank you, Jared Blumenthal. Thank you.
3: I did a special PowerPoint presentation for our radio audience. Yeah, no. okay. Cool. So, first of all, thank you to Warren and his team and everyone coming today. These kind of uh, documents are really valuable in, in... I was kind of joking about Portland. We we work closely with Portland and Oakland and everyone else, but it's good to have a little bit of competition. Competition helps move this thing along. So. The first year they came out, San Francisco was number one, and then Portland took over. So this year we're rooting to get San Francisco back on number one. So my background is actually doing international environmental work. I I worked a lot uh, with the UN and in lots of different countries, and it soon became clear that cities are kind of where the action is. And and this is the reason. We have 6.5 billion people on the planet and more than half of them now live in cities. So if we don't take care of cities and don't have a model of what cities can do in terms of the environment, our planet is, is more than doomed. I'm optimistic that we can. There are lots of great examples. The nice thing about the book is that different people are doing different things well. So if you look out in this book, you could actually say, you know, we could all improve from Portland to San Francisco to New York to Oakland, things that each of us can do and learn from this book of how to implement. It's not like we have to invent it. Someone else has actually done it. They've actually worked out the policy. They've got the political will to do it and it's being implemented. So that that is huge value. But in terms of cities, although we're only half the world's population, we're 75% of the world's pollution. So 75% of the world's CO2, waste, you name it, comes from cities. So it's kind of, in terms of the history of the movement, movement has really evolved for a lot of different reasons. One has been a complete absence of leadership at the federal level. Um, and that, that has actually, for cities, been a good thing because we can't wait for the Bush administration, in this case, to take action. Um, and you can see even the governor here in our state has taken action against his party, against the federal government, because we really, the imperative to do so is so strong. So, these are cities um, from around the world. They're iconic. We all know what they are. What we don't think of really is mayors and citizens of cities as environmentalists. So, the environmental movement really has shifted from a place where we thought of the environment as somewhere else. Here in San Francisco, the closest environment we'd think of is probably Muir Woods or Yosemite, or it's always somewhere else, to a place where the environment is now our home we live. This is our environment. We can't get away from it. This is where we live. This is where we eat. This is where we uh, take transit. This is our environment. So that shift is, I think, a big and important one that's happened recently. We have pretty stark choices to make. This is in Jakarta, a lot of the world's cities. A million people a week, a million people a week will move to a city. So the, the urbanization trend is only increasing. And Putting huge pressure on natural resources and infrastructure and other systems that don't have the c- capacity to really deal with it. So when we had this conference of the world's largest 70 mayors in San Francisco in 2005, it was a five-day conference because here in San Francisco we have 800,000 people in five days 800,000 people will move to a city and that was kind of the symbolism of that. This is kind of how the rest of the world looks at the United States um, Catastrophic climate change, not our fault. The American people want big-ass cars. I kind of like that. Um, And then the reality is actually this GM ad that appeared in the Chronicle last year where they said, you know what, you can buy a Humvee because we're going to guarantee the gas price for a year. So don't worry about gas prices. We're going to actually just guarantee fuel prices for you. So get that big car. It doesn't make any difference. Don't think about the planet or anything else. This is a picture of an oil tanker going into Hurricane Katrina. Um, and it's kind of a perfect storm of two things colliding. One is climate change. Uh, we now you know, day by day, blow by blow, kind of tragic headlines. Warren articulated one from yesterday. They do nothing but really depress me and kind of, you know, we, we need to come up with solutions because I think people are so tired of hearing about how the planet's going to hell in a handbasket if we don't soon come up with solutions that people think that they can implement on their in their daily lives will, will be lost because people just give up all hope of anything good happening. Um, talking of something else, this is actually kind of good happening, which is that the amount of oil that we can take out of the ground is harder to get. There's less of it, and it's more expensive. So gas prices are going to go up. We didn't have the political will in the U.S. to deal with putting large taxes on gasoline, but the natural resources themselves are going to put those taxes on us and we need to work out how to live in a world without gasoline. Economic losses are huge from great weather disasters. This is just going to increase. Uh, people are now getting notices all along the Florida, uh, North Carolina coast that the insurers are not going to insure their property anymore. Without insurance for your homes, you cannot have a mortgage. So, insurance is gonna play a huge role in shaping the environmental movement of the future. This was Katrina that really catalyzed around the world, but really here in the U.S. for the first time that we need to deal with climate change. And real, the the human pictures that came out of it were just so tragic how the U.S. is, you know, the the lone superpower could be left high and dry, uh, and the huge racial and other economic disparities kind of came out incredibly starkly. So this is what we're talking about, this conference on green cities where the future lives. I'm going to quickly talk about the San Francisco Climate Action Plan. Uh, We developed this plan in 2001. It's basically to get 20% below our 1990 emissions by 2012. So it's a very aggressive target. Um, And we basically said, let's let's make a target that we can really work hard to get at. One of the things that that we're going to find increasingly, and, and maybe Warren and his future work, we'll look at is there aren't very many good standards. There are a lot of goals that have been set, but very, very difficult to work out. How do you measure your emissions? So this is a role that cities can play ahead of states and ahead of nations. How do you set up an inventory? How do you know what your emissions were in 1990? And what we found out was that it was incredibly difficult. It cost us about $200,000 in two years to work out the answer to that question because the Metropolitan Transportation Commission looks at vehicle miles traveled. Muni looks at trips taken. I mean, how do you blend those? How do you work out what the fuel efficiency standard for San Francisco should be? If you take a trip, what are the emissions? Is that based on a Hummer or a Prius or bicycling? Or how do you work all those things out? So this is a real work for the future that cities can all collaborate on together. Hopefully when other cities do it, they can do it in two months and spend $2,000 rather than so kind of learning from each other about 49% of our emissions are from vehicles and transit, um, which is pretty much uh, the state average, too. So a huge amount of our transportation uh, is inefficient, um, as you saw some, some of those slides. We still think of ourselves as leaders in California, but a lot of our emissions are from congestion and poor decisions around transportation. These are the goals that we have to get, uh, 2.6 million tons. It's about the equivalent of what I just met with the Irish environment minister. They have to get about the same amount of San Francisco. Um, so it's a, it's a steep goal because it's more than the Kyoto um, challenge. Um, and also, you know, our baseline year uh, was a low year in terms of the economy. If you'd done it in 2000, we'd have a lot of emissions. So when you, where you draw your baseline for climate change really makes a difference. So the U.S. Uh, buildings, you've heard a lot about buildings, but they uh, they account for about 65% of the electricity consumption. It's not total energy, but gas and other things come into that. But about 65% of the energy, about 30% of the raw materials, about 30% of the municipal solid waste. Um, and this is the answer. This is what inspires me. This is the new California Academy of Sciences. It's going to be a LEED platinum building. They... Uh, the roof is is going to be uh, all native grasslands, about four acres, and the whole perimeter is solar panels. So it's really it's stunning. When you I went for a tour the other day, it's it's going to blow your mind away. And what it will do is, when people visit it, they'll get inspired to see that there are solutions and not constantly think about the negative, but think, wow, this building's actually regenerating stormwater, you know. It's got solar panels, it's got natural ventilation, it's built out of recycled materials, and 100% of the building that was taken down was reused, 100%. So all the construction and demolition waste didn't go to landfill, it was reused back into the foundation and cement. So the whole building itself is a model. In terms of legislation, uh, I'm not going to go into what LEED means, but it's a high-level green building standard. Uh, One of the questions that Warren asked, so I'll try and answer it briefly is, Are we going towards uh, mandating that all buildings be a certain LEED standard? And, And one of the issues with LEED is that it's a great standard. It creates a checklist that you have to fill out, but it isn't particularly good when it comes to the certification process itself. And so we're looking at the first thing that we did was come out with priority permitting. So it now takes about 11 months to get issued a planner, if you want to build a new building, Tishman, you know, who owns this building, wants to build a new one. That costs a huge amount of money because you own the real estate. It's lying dormant or not getting the value that you want. So now we're saying within two weeks, if you build a lead gold building, you will get assigned a a planner. So it goes from 11 months to about two weeks. And that's a huge incentive for uh, people. And it actually is a way of using the market rather than mandating it, creating financial incentives to do the right thing. so we're exploring looking at lead, uh, gold for all city construction, um, but at the moment we're not there. So still 49% of our emissions are from CO2. San Francisco should be proud. We do all these great things from uh, critical mass to the trolley and cable cars to people walking with their shoelaces untied across the Bay Bridge. Muni <laughs> <laughs> uh, Metro's system, we're... Our goal is to have a 100% zero-emission fleet by 2020. Right now, you know, Muni gets bashed all the time, but we should be proud that it has more electric vehicles in the Muni fleet than the rest of the nation combined. So if you look at all the rest of the nation's vehicle fleet in transit, uh, we have nearly all our vehicles, only about uh, 30% of them are not electric. Those are are diesel. So we're switching them this week. uh, We just bought 86 diesel Electric hybrids they will all start with biodiesel, so they'll be virtually co2 free and and the PM and other particulate matter will be significantly reduced and then the rest of the muni fleet is also going to biodiesel we're looking at creating in terms of local economy if we can stop spending millions of dollars um, going out of the country for fuel and rather recreate it. the Public Utilities Commission in the city and ourselves are working on a plan to collect for free grease that's costing about $15 million a year because it's clogging the drains and we have to spend chemicals, taking that out and turning that into biodiesel locally, which will close, close the loop and stop money leaching out of the country. So it, it will be 100% sustainable, CO2-free. And uh, one of the things that people always ask about is clean fuels. Um, and it's a big issue. You know, the president talks about it a lot. Instead of talking about climate change, what you need to look at is really the carbon cycle of that fuel. If you're shipping fuel um, like biodiesel that's made from palm oil from Indonesia where they've chopped down rainforests, before it even gets here, it has a terrible carbon impact. And so it may not be gasoline, but it still doesn't help. Um, So we're we're also looking, I know Ian's going to talk about jobs more, but this is a great local jobs, local economy uh, initiative. We're doing a lot with energy efficiency. It's the, the way to go for every single uh, thing that you do before you go to solar power or buy offsets, you should be doing efficiency. People say, well, sh- should we buy offsets? Well, no, you should do everything you can because it's a lot cheaper to do efficiency. Um, so we've already done about 24 megawatts, which is about enough to take 24,000 homes off the grid in San Francisco just through efficiency in the last five years. We're looking at an ordinance that we need all of your support on, which would be a time of sale ordinance, which would basically say uh, that you need to uh, do a home energy audit before you sell the house, and that you need to put 1% of the sale price of the house into energy efficiency. So that's kind of a way of combating the fact that we have such a high sale prices. We'll use 1% of it and turn it into energy efficiency. We closed down Hunter's Point, May 2006 was a huge victory. Uh, now we're working to, we have a $1.3 million program to train at-risk youth and former gang members to become solar installers in the Bayview and to install them in uh, churches and YMCAs and lots of different stuff. Tidal power is the next frontier. The red is the, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. You can see San Francisco's in green and Marin's above it and Oakland's to the east. So there's a lot of potential there to think about tidal power. This is what it would look like, invisible, um, unless you were underwater. Uh, Recycling—we heard about. Our goal is to get to zero waste. Uh, this was actually done last week before we announced the 69%. So we're now at 69%. Um, but we have about 300 tons of food scraps that turned into organic compost today. This is where they're done, and then they're sold to vineyards, um, and the vineyards use that compost, and then we drink the wine. So it's <laughs> a nice, nice way of closing that loop. Uh, Treasure Island is. The model, uh, it's kind of a great segue to what Ian's going to talk about because it's right in between both of us, right in the middle of the bay. So we hope it is – we think it's going to be the most sustainable community in U.S. history. We brought in Bill McDonough, a whole set of other people, Be lead Platinum Neighborhood Development. Um, it'll have 6,000 homes on the island, but it'll actually export renewable energy at peak. Uh, all the stormwater will be treated in a constructed wetland, and it will have a 400-acre park, um, which will be the second largest park in San Francisco after Golden Gate Park. And um, So it's going to have all kinds of things. It will be the first congestion pricing in California and probably actually the U.S. Bloomberg came out last week and talked about congestion pricing in New York, but this will actually be the first implementation of congestion pricing, so it will be very expensive. All the parking will be unbundled with the housing so when you buy a house you will have to separately buy a garage and all the garage will not be contiguous with the housing so you have to walk somewhere else to get it. Uh, That's kind of a model of what it will look like. This uh, is a picture of what we won't have in San Francisco soon which is plastic bags. Last week we had Chris Jordan here, the photographer. This is a little snippet out of one of his huge photographs but The little symbolic things that cities can do capture the public imagination and kind of show us that we can do things every day that contribute to the solution rather than the problem. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Jared. And we'll move right along here. To introduce Ian Kim, Ian is the uh, director of the Reclaim the Future program at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland, and uh, he has an MBA from Yale, uh, 2003. And he'll tell you a lot more about what the Ella Baker Center is doing in his program in the area of green collar jobs. Ian Kim.
0: Alright, oh, clapping already. Huh? Thank you, thank you, Warren and uh, Jared. That's a tough presentation to follow. So, um, I mean, after we're, we probably should have did, probably should have done city number five before city number two or number one. But uh, thank you, that's great. So my name is Ian Kim. I work at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, and we run a, a number of different initiatives and programs. In brief, we work on violence prevention on police reform, juvenile justice reform, uh, and especially on that we have a statewide campaign called Books Not Bars, which is trying to transform and reform our state youth prison system. And the fourth initiative uh, is, is about job creation. And um, the, 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 the job creation is a natural link for everything else because the, the, the thing you can correlate with, with violence and crime every day up and down is, is opportunity and, and especially employment and education. So um, as we do our work around, uh, around violence prevention and juvenile justice reform, we really see the need to close the loop and to create economic opportunity as well for low-income people and people of color. Um, I, uh, I, I like to talk people up. So I was in a taxicab the other day in, in, in San Francisco, so I'm talking with somebody who drives for a living and you know he's burning carbon for a living. And not only that, but he was a, a young man who had recently moved here from Nigeria, and he lived in San Jose. So every day he would drive his cab from San Jose all the way up to San Francisco, drive that around all day, and then go back home. And I'm hopeful, you know, it's, it's nice, I know that you know it's just a matter of time before all of our taxi cabs are running on, on, uh, on clean fuel. Uh, but what was also interesting in my conversation with him was um, you know, said so, well. What's what's the next step for you? you how do you feel about driving cabs? It's like, well, this is nice, but you know, I think what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm I'm thinking about next month moving up to San Francisco because I'm going to start at City College, and I want to become an auto mechanic because uh, when I was in Nigeria, my brother had a, a mechanic shop, and I already have some skills, and I uh, want to want to do that. And I just thought that was amazing, and what I'm really looking forward to is, is the day when I know that the mechanics job that he's going to get, it, you know, he's going to change his job from driving a renewable fuel fe- uh, vehicle to repairing renewable fuel vehicles. Uh, that's, that's the future that's just not too far off. And the key to me is the fact that he needs to go to City College to do that. That he needs uh, a little bit of training and he needs a leg up in order to really be sure that he has that opportunity. And um, so I'm talking about San Francisco because I live in San Francisco, but I work in Oakland. At the, at the Ella Baker Center is based in Oakland, and I, love, I really love both cities. And Oakland is a really special place. Last year, I was uh, doing some precinct walking uh, during the election season, and not as part of my job because that would be illegal. I work at a 501c3. But in my own time, I was doing some precinct walking, not uh, walking door-to-door, and uh, on the same street, on the same street in, in this neighborhood in, in East Oakland, I talked to uh, not only a couple of white families, but a couple of black families, a Vietnamese family, a family from Mexico, a family from Guatemala, a, fam- a Mian family, all on the same street. And I was, just, I was blown away. And Oakland, like the whole state of California, is a, what we call a majority-minority place, right? There are more people of color in the city of Oakland than there are are white folks. And um, Oakland is a special place, too, because as Warren has shown us, we're ranked as a top 10 green city. Most people think of Oakland, unfortunately, for a skyrocketing uh, homicide rate, for violence, for some stubborn poverty. And at the same time, we have a top 10 green ranking. How does this happen? Well, it's... It's easy to see that there are, if you just take a look and start talking to folks in Oakland and in Alameda County, there's just this critical mass of people who really care and who have taken the time to show some leadership in, in their communities and in their city and who really understand that sustainability is not just a checkbox but is a lens. That doing things sustainably is not just a checkbox and a long list of checkboxes to make sure you're doing it right, but it's the lens through which we interpret and evaluate everything that we do. And the, the 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 opportunity that I see for Oakland as a as uh, an, a, a town that has a history of of a lot of of, of an industrial base of, of working class blue collar jobs, uh, the opportunity I see is to draw a link and to, to to create a strong linkage between the the greenness of the city and, for lack of a better term, the brownness of the city. You know. Um, Sustainability all too often is uh, sort of, it's it's like a script that's written by and for uh, people who are more college educated and uh, that that often don't include people of color or immigrant communities. And I don't think that that's uh, through any malicious intention. I think it's that because of the culture that we have in this country, uh, because of the, the taboo, and the fear and the insecurity that we all have around issues of race and class that this, this bridge hasn't quite been drawn yet or needs to be drawn a little bit more strongly. So um, uh, just an example of this when, when I hear uh, so, some environmentalists talk about the climate crisis then it sounds a lot like um, talking about the problems of polar bears at the poles, right? The, The glaciers are melting, and the polar bears uh, are are losing their habitat, and they're going to drown. And that's really powerful for motivating a lot of folks. But if you go to some low-income neighborhoods in Oakland, like in west Oakland, and start trying to organize people around climate crisis and talk to them about polar bears, it's going to be hard work. But if you just flip the script and you start talking about people drowning instead of polar bears drowning, Hurricane Katrina you start talking about asthma epidemics and, and cancer clusters, you almost don't have to finish your sentence. The, the problems that we face, the crisis that we face in the environment is very real to everyone or can be made real to everyone. And I think that there's a lot of work for us to do to, to, to make sure that sustainability and, and, and our work around the environment mainstreams as fast as possible and that we train up the trainers in all the different communities and subcultures that we have in this country to mainstream this issue as fast as possible. And mainstreaming, to me, in a place that's majority-minority, means really figuring out how to translate these, these concerns and translate the stories that we tell and translate the way that we describe the problems and the solutions so that they're really relevant to, to, to everyone. And so at the Ella Baker Center, one of the ways that, we've, that we really see is making... The environmental crises and the opportunities in the new green economy really relevant is to talk about jobs. The work I do, I'm in it for the jobs. I, not for me, I have a job. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm in it for jobs for the people of Oakland. And um, a little bit about, just a little bit, I mean, it's, it's, you almost don't have to, to prove anymore to people that the green economy, the environmentally sustainable, sustainable economy, is growing rapidly. It's growing on a vertical uh, venture capital investments in clean technology alone last year were $2.9 billion. Uh, and within the top five, uh, uh, I think it was the third highest venture capital investment category in, in, in the United States. Uh, there's, a, there's a sector called LOHAS. Have you guys heard of LOHAS? It stands for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. That's, uh, that's everything from yoga to uh, echinacea and acupuncture to buying organic food and shopping at whole paycheck market, I mean whole foods market. And um, you know, the Lojas has 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 moved very is moving very quickly from being a fringe hippie thing that you just thought you were doing. You thought you were the only one taking echinacea to to, to being something that really appeals in a broad way to lots and lots of people. Safeway has an organics brand now, right? So uh, the the loha uh, sector or grouping of sectors was a market of 230 billion dollars in the United States last year, and it's growing very quickly. So the question that we ask at the Ella Baker Center is: as this green wave rises, as as this green wave rises, will it lift all boats? Is the green economy, or can we make the green economy powerful enough to lift people out of poverty and job? Job creation is really, I, I think, where we, we see the, the, key, the key opportunity and the key moment. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the Oakland-Apollo Alliance. Uh, part of the work that I do is to coordinate a coalition, the Oakland-Apollo Alliance. Apollo was the god of light and uh, the sun and was a pretty bad dude back in the day. Um, the Apollo project was also our, our nation's project to put a man on the moon in 10 years, Right. Uh, Nobody thought it could be done, but we said, we're going to do it. We're going to do it in 10 years, and it happened. And I I think that responding to the climate crisis and responding to this environmental crisis we face, we have to see this as the new Apollo project of our generation. We have to get this done. We have to reduce our carbon emissions by 80% uh, compared to 1990 levels. We don't have a choice. And so the Oakland Apollo Alliance is a coalition of environmentalists and labor unions and business and community groups. It's like a dream team. And uh, I mean, if you and if you know anything about these groups, you know that they don't get along. They don't always get along together, but we have an agenda that unites rather than divides. We're talking about uh, growing green business in such a way that it creates high-quality jobs that are union or union-friendly, meaning they're 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 good, uh, good car- career, good careers that are family-raising jobs that lift people up into the middle class, uh, that are aligned also with community-based training programs so that those jobs are available to those, especially those folks that have barriers to employment. And the, there's a, a national Apollo Alliance, and there are other Apollo alliances in places like uh, Portland and, and New York City. And the one in Oakland is we're the largest green growth coalition in Northern California. I'm really happy and excited to report that uh, the city council in Oakland later this month is very likely to approve some seed funding uh, through the Oakland-Apollo Alliance to create a green job training program which we're calling the Oakland Green Jobs Corps. And uh, it's, it's using a pot of money that came out of an, an energy settlement where Oakland sued some energy companies for overcharging on their rates. So it's sort of like using uh, tobacco money to fight smoking. It's like using energy company money to, that it has to be spent on energy efficiency. And so I'm, I'm excited because now we, we're putting out the call to green contractors and green businesses and we're we're just now starting the conversation to forge the partnership that will create this pipeline and pathway that will fill in the rungs on the ladder for young people in Oakland to get their foot in the door of careers in making Oakland more energy efficient. So uh, if, if you're around in, in Oakland on May 22nd, come out to City Hall and, and, uh, uh, and add your voice to the chorus of people that will be uh, excited and celebrating the fact that we're about to get this seed funding. And... Um, and then, and and uh, we'll we'll see we see we'll see where it goes from there. Um, so I'll just I'll just end by saying that um, I, I have a two year old daughter, and I know that by the time she's in fifth grade, she's going to be asking me tough questions. And I, you know I know that she's going to be asking me questions like, uh, I mean, tenth grade that's like eight years from now. Things are going to change a lot in eight years. And I know she's going to be asking me, what, what were you doing 10 years ago when you guys saw this coming, right? Uh, what, what role did you play? And I want to be able to tell her that, um, that when we were at the front end of this green economy, that we, we all really understood that it's more than just about avoiding and preventing eco-apocalypse, we know that we got to do that, and frankly, it's a question whether we can pull that off. But we know it's more than just avoiding eco-apocalypse. It's about achieving a state of what we might call eco-equity, right? We can't settle for at what at the Ella Baker Center we refer to as eco-apartheid, where we have ecological haves and ecological have-nots, where we've got folks in, on one side of a bridge who are doing yoga and have bio this and, and solar that, And then uh, right on the other side of that bridge, we have, uh, as I was saying before, asthma epidemics and cancer clusters. So I'll just close by saying that, uh, repeating something I heard from Paul Hawken last year, where he said that the, the mindset that allows us to throw away the planet's resources is the same fundamental mindset that allows us to throw away whole groups and categories of people. And by the same token, we have this amazing opportunity right now Uh, by the same token, the mindset that finds the solutions and really understands uh, what we need to do to transform our relationship with the environment is the same mindset that can transform our social relationships, that can heal the deep divides of violence and poverty that we create in the way that we do business now. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Ian, and thank you, Jared. Fantastic. We now have time for some questions from the audience, but before that, uh, the book's for sale outside. Another contributing author just came, uh, Frank Marquardt, who's here. Hey, Frank. And uh, we could sign books, et cetera. But questions. Please speak up loudly because this is for Radio Read Broadcast. Yes.
2: And I can rephrase, too.
1: So the question was to Jared: compost yeah. toilets and building okay. codes um, so making them legal.
3: One would be uh, on the compost toilets themselves. I'm, I mean, just to describe what happens in one. I mean, basically, at it, it, uh, at the end of the year for a family of four, what you'd have at the bottom of a compost toilet could be condensed into about three pounds. So everything else biodegrades. I mean, it's incredible the the lack of waste. That's resulting in a compost toilet. When you think about environmental justice issues here in this city, all our sewage and wastewater goes to the Bayview, um, where they deal with the smell and all the other issues. So, I mean, it kind of—it's the obvious thing. Of there's a solution out there, why can't we implement it? And so, one of the trickiest parts of of my job is working with other city agencies who have different mandates and getting them. To realize that we all share the same mandate. So, um, compost toilets are, are complicated in an urban setting. We're trying to get one permitted at Garden for the Environment, which is at Seventh and Lawton. But what's easier to permit, which we still don't permit here in San Francisco, is waterless urinals. So this technology saves each urinal saves on a you know average basis about twenty four thousand gallons a year from a. There's no smell. They've been proven all around the state. Even our California EPA building has waterless urinals, but in San Francisco, they're still not permitted. So we're working hard to try and get those kind of things permitted, um, and we need all of your help. Because one of the challenges that the leaders in this book, or even the folks that aren't leading in this book, um, at least the top ten, is that everyone thinks they've got them solved. So the Sierra Club, NRDC, uh, all these other large environmental groups that we have in san francisco they spend most of their time looking elsewhere but in order to get to where we need to be we need a lot of help with some of these technical problems and and that's a great example right there
1: thanks jared and thanks for getting into the subject i mean the sustainability requires looking at everything every aspect of life without flinching sometimes so it's perfect yes
2: provide any, uh, say, uh, a job board where you're showing all the places where people can get jobs in the green technology? And finally, as a citizen, what can people do to help you?
3: Wow. Okay. So on the first one, um, the utilities kind of ganged up at the state level, and unlike places like Germany, where you get paid above the market rate for solar (laughs) energy put back into the grid... In San Francisco, as the rest of California, you're only, you'll only get rebates and money from the state if you size your solar facility or your solar panels on your roof to the amount of energy you use. So any excess that you generate, you're not paid for, and you don't get rebates for. It's a, it's a ridiculous law. We should be incentivizing the maximum amount of solar on each roof. Um, in terms of green jobs, it's a great idea. Uh, we have jobs at our department, but there isn't a central... Uh, resource base for the city and it's a great idea to think about all the green jobs from, you know, we're funding uh, city college programs on biodiesel to solar installers. I really, that's a great idea which we'll implement. Um, the last idea would be if you could come in and help us implement that second idea, that would be great. So we need, uh, we, need, we, need pe- we need interns, we need volunteers. Uh, it takes a huge amount of effort to do outreach one of the things that we find is that the traditional paths of outreach are so highly leaned towards getting people to buy more stuff that if you see something that tells you to buy less stuff or to do something ecologically right on TV it's kind of a wash so really the personal relationships where you knock on people's doors where you talk to people in your neighborhood are the ways that, that you can make a difference is to convert someone else that isn't using the green bin to say you know what this is an easy thing to do I mean, really, our, our goal after an inconvenient truth is to come up with convenient solutions because if they're inconvenient, people aren't going to do them, and if they're too expensive, they're not going to do them. So affordable, equitable, and convenient.
1: Thank you. Um, I don't know who was next. Uh, I'll take this woman on the left. My name is Anne Bartz. Uh, I have a question for you, Warren. Yes. If Well, it depends how you define that. Uh, Public transit access is equal equity. Access to local food is equal equity. Clean air is eco-equity. All those areas that we measure impact uh, equality of cities. If you don't have public transit in the city, you don't have clean air, you don't have access to fresh and local food, I think that's uh, pretty unequal in terms of the playing field. The question is, how would you measure it? How would you define it? It would be a very difficult metric to come up with, and it would be subject to a lot of arguments or a lot of dissension, Uh, it's possible, but the question is how? And we wanted to be practical, look at data that was existing. There is no measure of equal equity I've ever seen in terms of uh, statistical output from the US government or the EPA or from NGOs. So it's coming up with that and we're always open to adding new measures onto our study. So if you have any ideas. I have an idea since
3: we're on the panel I get priority. So one of the ideas would be for instance on food security, to look at the zip codes where the the greatest number of low income and minority communities live and then map out what percentage, for instance, one of your indicators is farmers' markets. Yeah, so and, and community gardens. Yeah. Community gardens. So on any one of these indicators you could if you worked out in a city where the EJ impacted community would be, and then do a ratio of what percentage people live there versus what services they have or don't have, with parks as well. We have the best parks in the nation, but if you go to the Bayview, there's none. So that would be a pretty bad scale on... I mean, you could do it on each one. solar panels. How many solar panels do you have in that neighborhood? How many green buildings do you have in that neighborhood? And then look at the negative things. You know, how many negative things do they have in their community? And you'd soon... I mean, you could use the exact indicators you have, but just put equity in that.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great idea. and. I was Be happy to consider any ideas you have. Yeah. Any other questions? I think we have time for just two wanna, more. Just want to add on
0: that, yeah. um, the thing I like about that. This conversation is, is seeing that it's not really um, it's not a debate about values. It's really an engineering problem. So the thing that excites me about all these conversations that, about eco equity and the environment is that uh, time and time again, what I see is that. Uh, we don 't have the answers oftentimes because we haven't asked the questions right, so um, I just want to say that I, I appreciate Jared 's response because we see that it's mostly an engineering problem and just a, a challenge of taking the time and having the capacity to to think it through
1: and the resources to to do that on a exactly. city scale that's, that's right. another
0: element. yes, this
1: gentleman yeah, it's you. Hi, uh,
3: it's kind of a double-edged sword so the biggest um the biggest issue that we have at the moment as a state and a city is called preemption so you know uh, there's in the constitution there's all these issues to do with states rights which is what the states can take legal uh, authority over and now the bush administration is fighting back and basically saying well no Use states and cities we have control over regulating chemicals. we have control over regulating vehicle emissions. we have control because they don't want to do anything, so the real battle is, at the moment is to maintain our ability to have some sovereignty over our environmental decisions at the state and local level and that 's really up for grabs. I mean the Supreme Court and others will be looking at that very decision, so we need to maintain it and then i mean we i think we should spend, the the national environmental group should spend less time in Washington and more time in Sacramento and San Francisco and Oakland because um, that's where the action is and that's yeah. where we need the help. But it's
2: just supposed to be to a
3: certain, you know, parts of the country and it's countries You go to Houston and you're 365 petrochemical plants in just one city and they still allow three coal plants to be built up. Uh, What you heard from Ian, I think, is that we need to build a constituency, a local. If the people in Houston 50 years ago didn't want to have petrochemical plants in the city, we wouldn't have any now. And so we need to make sure that they're not built in the future, and the only way to do that is at the local level. So It's organizing work. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I do think cities are setting the agenda for the 2008 presidential elections by all their actions more than almost any force in terms of environment, sustainability, and local economies.
0: I, mean, I would say even with a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, the, the, the key leadership in, in this stuff um, will continue to be at the city and state level. Um, I, I don't think that we can expect the federal government to save us. I think we can just expect at best a Democratic federal government to be willing to, to, to look to cities and states for the models. And so I think that our work doesn't go away. I think it actually intensifies as we see better leadership in, in Washington.
1: I think we're going to have to end it on that. Carrie's up here, but I thank you so much. And you can ask questions to our blog, uh, greenacity.com. You can send them, and we'll be happy to answer those over the next few days. So uh, that's www.greenacity.blog. The book is How Green is Your City. Thank you very much to the Commonwealth Club,
2: and uh, take care. Our thanks to uh, Warren Karlenzig, Jared Blumenfeld, and Ian Kim for this wonderful program. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, observing 100 years of enlightened discussion, is
0: adjourned.